Victoria Hislop, it is lovely to see you. And before I start asking you any of my 20 questions, I probably should say that we are actually friends. Indeed. I think we're good friends. Good friends, yes. I'm, I'm very, very fond of you, Matt. So if you ask me anything really horrid and difficult, I shall forgive you. <laughs> I, I won't. It comes from a good place. <laughs> I definitely won't ask you anything horrible. Maybe a difficult question, unwittingly. But this is really exciting because now you're going to have to help me here. I remember interview. I mean, we've I've interviewed you a lot over the years, including on stage. But I remember asking you in the past about being an author, and you felt that you couldn't really, or you didn't feel like you'd become an author until you'd written a certain number of novels. And that was quite a long time ago because I think then you were hovering around the four or five mark. Now, and we should obviously count Carp Postal from Greece, shouldn't we, as a novel? It's a, unconventional form perhaps but a novel so does that mean we're on you're on number nine now yes and actually I also include my children's book um which is Maria's Island um a version of the island for children because writing for children and creating a tale that convinces a young reader is as difficult as writing for adults so I regard The Figurine as my 10th novel. The Figurine is, well, I'm interviewing you in mid-September and it's coming out in a couple of weeks. And I know you're never supposed to judge a book by its cover, but the first thing that did strike me with this book, and I'm holding it now, is just the spectacularly impactful colour. And it's got a picture on the left of a figurine on, on a sort of Greek stone open window type thing looking out over this deep blue sea with a deep blue sky and some islands in the distance and it really grabs you well I'm happy to hear that I mean it is it's incredible how many shades of blue there are perhaps it should be called 50 shades of blue but (laughs) me Greece is very much shades of blue you know just from the sky to the sea to the way it's used um, in, you know, painting of these church domes. It's very much the colour of the country, and which is why the, the Greek flag is blue and white. That that blue that you see on a Greek flag is quintessentially, for me, Greece. The sense of the visual is important to you, isn't it? Not just as a novelist, but also as someone who gets heavily involved in the tvization of your books so you get involved in the production don't you yes i do um so far three of my novels have been adapted for television in greece and in each case it's been a very wonderful experience for me because i've been involved and it's sort of part of my contractual um or the TV company's obligation is to involve me. And it's been very beneficial, I think, on both sides so that I can just kind of be the nanny of the production, you know, hold the hand of the director and the costume designer and the script writer just to make sure we don't depart too much from the book because that's something I don't want. And I think it's sometimes a mistake when a TV production becomes unrecognisably different from the book. We're going to talk about the figurines specifically without giving too much away, but I also want to set the scene. So as well as these 10 books, as we've said, you get involved in the adaptation for TV of your novels. You're a massive name in Greece. 
you were given honorary Greek citizenship, weren't you, not very long ago. You took part in, you competed in the Greek version of Strictly Come Dancing. You are married to Ian Hislop, editor of Private Eye and star of Have I Got News for You. So you live a very interesting, engaging life. And there's so much to talk about. I want to start, actually, though, by asking you about your, well, this is now my third question, but asking you about your, your audience. Because when we're together on stage, people really seem to, I was going to say love you, but warm to you, want to be there in the room. And there are a lot of, how should I say this, older women for whom your books seem to be incredibly important. But your audience is wider than that. And I, and I wonder when you write whom you're writing for. Are you writing for yourself? Are you writing for your, for your readers? Are you writing for a certain type of reader? Talk to us about that part of being a novelist. Hmm. The honest truth is that my first reader is myself. And I'm trying to almost tell myself a story which might sound odd, but it just feels like the most honest way to do it. And if you start manufacturing a story for some audience you've created in your head, I think, or I certainly would go off the rails because I'd be thinking, or who am I supposed to be? um, Who should be sympathetic here in order to please this audience? So really I'm telling the story to myself I'm very aware that my protagonists and my sympathetic characters are generally women Uh, so inevitably women will kind of perhaps be swept along and carried by those female protagonists and I'm also very aware and I, I don't do it consciously but generally my villains are men and I'm not a man hater at all but I suppose I'm I am more sympathetic um, to women than to men and these things are all you know part of one's subconscious one's background one's uh, hinterland that kind of seep out through the book so perhaps I do alienate some male readers clearly I haven't alienated you Matt which is very good for me but yes my readers tend to be when I began writing I guess my readers were slightly older than me and quite often when I went to do a a talk readers would say oh gosh I imagine that you'd be older because I, I write used to write more in my first novels through the voice of an older person like a narrator who was generally a grandparent telling the story to a younger person. So inevitably, I kind of took on the voice of a an elder, a more elderly person than myself. But that's 20 years ago. And, you know, I've aged 20 years. So I think I'm now writing in more in my own voice. And I hope that my readers are getting now younger than me. <laughs> so generally women, I think I'm... My, my, let's say, standard readership are probably women anything from 20 to 100 years old. Is this just the best job in the world? I mean, I often feel I've got the best job in the world talking to interesting people on stage or in podcast form, radio, TV. I absolutely love it. I love 
trying to understand people, trying to understand a little bit of them and what makes them tick. But for you, you get to write novels for a living. You get millions of people reading your books. I mean, how many has The Island sold now, your first novel? It was, it's been six million at some point. Yes, it's been, I've been saying six million for a long time. But then in China, you know, you can add what seems, as my children always tell me, oh, that's a very small number for China because it has a billion people. But every so often they kind of clock up another million. So it might be seven million now. Um, so is it, the, is it the best job in the world for you? Because It's the best job I've ever had. <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, apart from Dancing with the Stars, that was quite a nice job because believe it or not, I was paid to do that. Um, and that felt like a pretty nice job at the time. This is the Greek version of Strictly Come Dancing, is it? Absolutely. And every week, you know, if I stayed in, if I survived another week, you know, I got paid. So <laughs> um, I think that might have the edge over being a writer. <laughs> and, and, sociable. <laughs> and just to be clear, this the so-called strictly cursed didn't strike did it you didn't go off with your dance partner you you, you and Ian are still very much an item last time I checked we are and in fact my dance partner Tilemachos is getting married um next weekend so no very and he's marrying his long time dance partner so I can absolutely hand on heart say that the so-called curse didn't afflict me with your writing do you feel pressure in any way to conform whether to your own expectations standards style to conventional structures do you ever feel that you're playing it safe when I do these interviews I have to make sure I ask 20 questions and that brings with it a certain pressure it would be easier just to say let's chat for as long as we can and see what happens but 20 questions brings us a certain amount of structure but also pressure do you feel any of that and and do you sometimes feel what I'd really like to do and perhaps what you do do is throw the rules out the window and take Mm -hmm. big risks quite often when I read a novel that I absolutely love off the top of my head example my name is Lucy Barton the Elizabeth Strout tiny novel huge at the same time and I mean, not experimental in a wild way, but completely sort of outside any structure that, you know, I've ever attempted. And I read something like that and I think, gosh, what an incredible idea. I should free myself up a bit more um, and write something a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more unconventional. And then, of course, I start writing a story and I write it in the way that's natural to me, which is how I've always done it. I think lots of writers very successfully write in the first person. And I would love to try that. And yet whenever I started it, sort of experimented with that, I found it too restricting. And I go back to being, you know, the the third person you know, not seeing everything through one pair of eyes. And it it, it kind of gives you more freedom in, in many ways. But I write in the way that just feels to me 
the way I can tell a story. Um, but I hugely admire people who do things a little bit differently. You know, there's room for all sorts. It goes without saying that, I mean, let's take the figurine. You are the creator. You are the author. How much, though, of you? So I'm talking not about you as the creative force, because that is you, that comes from you. But how much of you is there, say, in Helena, who goes to Oxford? You yeah. went to you went to Oxford. Just to take something really obvious, yeah. you're, when you're writing about Helena, who's the star of this book and is on an important journey, you might say series of journeys or multiple journeys, how much of Victoria Hislop is there in her? There's much more of Victoria Hislop in Helena than in any other character I've written, absolutely. She's born pretty much at the same time. She grows up in a small country town where there's a Woolworths. There's a lot of my childhood, a lot of my... Uh, even how I dressed, and weirdly, quite a lot, not the colour of her hair, which is actually more like yours, beautiful kind of red-headed girl here, but her her constant despair with this curly hair, which was, I mean, it sounds, men never never really get it when women talk about their hair, but it it was one of my pet hates as a child and growing up. So I put all my relationship with my hair into Helena's growing up and how she comes to terms with it, which sounds completely mad, but I think a lot of women will understand that. But her her growing up, her um, experience, her Oxford experience, and then after that kind of completely goes off in another direction. But her sort of timidity which turns into a more a much she turns into a much more confident person as she ages a lot of that is very me and i quite enjoyed putting lots of me into helena the big difference of course is that helena is a scientist and um you know that was a bit of a decoy really but it's important for her as a as a character that she is a scientist rather than a you know, an English graduate. Let's talk about sex for a moment, because oh, what you <laughs> you mentioned hair, and an image that sticks out for me is the golden hair of the student that Helena encounters at Oxford, and she'd not been interested in having a relationship for mm. some time, and she meets this guy, and what struck me apart from the golden colour of his hair and how it looked when it went, went once he'd come out of the shower because you described it just with one or two words but very vividly is that less can be more can't it because you don't actually describe much of their sexual encounter you describe the way that she feels about it before mm-hmm. and after I think mm-hmm. and to me less can be more can't it I mean the, the one book award that I would really be mortified to win is the Bad Sex Award, which, you know, always has created lots of attention in the past. And the writer whose passages of, you know, sex are read out to the audience must be completely kind of squirming in, in his or her shoes. Um, so, no, I... 
I've written what I, I think I've written sex scenes and then a reader will say, well, how did that character suddenly get, you know, how was she suddenly having a baby? And I said, well, she had sex with this guy. I didn't, you know, it was written on the page. And I said, well, I didn't even notice they were, you know, having any kind of physical encounter. So that's for me how it should be because... Not that I don't want to write sex scenes, they'd probably be quite fun, but I just find them cringe-making when I read them in other people's books. Just as a way into the novel, and as I said earlier, I don't want to give much away, but take one of the other characters, Dina or Anna or Nick or Harris or Hamish, and use that person for us as a vehicle into the novel and what you're trying to do. Um, Gosh, with... Every character in this book, I think, has something to say about the Greece of the period that I'm writing about. I'll just take Dina, for example, who is the maid of the grandparents, Helena's grandparents, who live in Athens. And like many Greeks that I've met in the last sort of 20 years of quite intensive visiting and almost living there at times, they have a hinterland, a a life, a past that's almost entirely dictated by whichever side of the politics, left or right, that they grew up in. And they don't wear the T-shirt or fly the flag saying, I'm left or I'm right, because in either case, there would always there would be repercussions and reactions from everybody around them. So they their politics tends to be quite buried. So Dina even surprised me when I, I kind of realized that what her background very convincingly would be was a very right-wing background in which her many male members of her family have died during conflict. And it's only for that reason that she's given a job by one of the very right-wing supporters of the junta, who were the dictatorship of the 67 to 74 period. And although I was loving Dina as a a human being, I suddenly thought, well, how, how come she's got this job in this household? And lo and behold, when I kind of had to because every character has to have a background, even if you don't write it into the story, you think about where they've come from. And I thought Dina can only have come from quite a far-right background in order to be working in a right-wing household. So, you know, that's mentioned in the book, but I can't go into everybody's detailed uh, political history but every character has some light shed on the the politics or the the situation that they find themselves in. So when you embark on a novel, what comes first? Is it the big idea? Does a character or a personality come to you? I know that research is really important to you. Yeah, well, in this story, I wanted somehow, even if it was buried very, very deep down and almost invisible um, to write about the Parthenon sculptures, sometimes and erroneously known as the Elgin marbles, which are the very controversial set of sculptures that live in the British Museum. 
but I couldn't, there was no way I was going to write about Lord Elgin and the 19th century. That's just not my métier. Um, I could have done a, a, a novelistic version of, let's say, taking one of the, a character who'd been one of his um, workmen, he took the, the sculptures away from the Parthenon. That was a sort of vague passing idea, but that is just simply beyond my kind of skills to take myself back nearly what, 200 years ago. So I wanted just, so I studied, I read a lot around the whole subject of archaeology and uh, our relationship with archaeological finds. Um, and that led me to go on a dig to observe an archaeological dig in the Aegean. And it was there that I really came across the much bigger subject of the looting of things that are dug up in during fines and afterwards and when they're taken to museums and discover that there's a huge market in ancient things and, and has been a thriving market for many, many years. And that was the, the kind of starting point for me. I thought I don't need to write about these huge things that were very publicly taken, but about something very small and very precious um, that, that had been looted. And explain why you think it's so important that artefacts, just like, say, shells from mm. foreign beaches, are not removed and not, are not taken. Mm. That's really kind of a wonderful coincidence because I have a shell on my desk <laughs> that's very beautiful, but I know I shouldn't have taken it. And I think I might go and put it back. It was actually from a beach in um, Sussex. Because quite often you you pick something up and you want to take it home. And people have been collecting souvenirs for thousands of years. I was just reading yesterday that people used to chip bits of Stonehenge off. You know, that was a very common thing to do um, in the 19th century. Because we have this desire to, well actually do more than remember i mean the great irony is that the word souvenir is, is just memory and at some point this passed into becoming something physical so we now think of a souvenir we british anyway as being something that we take home from that place that will kind of help us to remember rather than just rely, relying on our actual memory but i think you know, now I believe very firmly that it's it's wrong. Things should stay where they are for other people to see in their context and that to sort of obviously have a house full of bits that you've pilfered from around the world is incredibly wrong and actually criminal in many cases. And indeed, it is criminalised largely now. You know, we're not encouraged or we're told not to even pick wildflowers you know like bluebells you shouldn't pick them when you go into a wood because that damages the ecology so I think we're all getting used to this idea that you look and you remember but you don't take um, and on a very sort of basic level that that applies to archaeology sure. The figurine is incredibly timely isn't it? not just because it's about identity and 
the politics of taking things, but also human identity. Where do we come from? Which is something that we've always thought about as human beings, but we are really thinking about at the moment. It's also timely because of the missing artefacts from the British Museum. I grew up thinking that the British Museum, I'm sure I grew up thinking, just assuming that it was basically a good thing, that it was a good thing. And it was there, there was this big museum that we could go and look around and you kind of almost took it for granted or did take it for granted. But do you think that the British Museum should be disgorging itself of its treasure and reallocating many of its artefacts to the countries from which they originally came? Mm, it's where, where, do you, where do you stop and start with this? Yeah, it's a very complex subject and I think has been made, the lid in a way has been taken off the museum in the last few weeks by the discovery of these thefts and, you know, sales of items from the British Museum on eBay, looks like. Um, but I think disgorging is probably extreme. I don't think it needs to disgorge. But I think one of the things, apart from the thefts, that's really become much more public knowledge and has surprised people is the fact that there are 8 million objects in the British Museum's possession, of which 1% are on display in the galleries. So out of, you know, 8 million, 1% is visible for us to see on a day-to-day -day basis, which is a tiny, tiny number. And I believe that they've just gathered far too much over the years, you know, and they're overwhelmed, um, which is obviously why someone was able to, you know, half inch things and, and sell them off. And where countries feel very strongly that they want their cultural treasures back, I cannot see the excuse for not giving them back unless they're being handed back to a corrupt regime or a dangerous situation where they're going to be disseminated and maybe pilfered by other people. But of course, the most public example of it and the most notorious example are the Parthenon sculptures. And, you know, added to all this, I mean, I think the British Museum has just the most enormous problems at the moment. I mean, they, they're planning to raise £1 billion great deal of which is simply to refurbish, you know, the roof is leaking and that's on a very basic level, you know, that the fabric of the building is in, in dire need and yet they're holding on to these many, you know, great and valuable treasures simply because they want to, you know, if they look very objectively at the story of the Elgin theft and it, it was he did not have the permissions that most people believe him to have had he was given permission to take kind of moles to, to copy them so that they could be reproduced elsewhere he was not given permission to hack them off take the originals and it took him two years to do there was an outcry when he shipped them back to britain questions asked in Parliament, why has this man done this? And of course, when he got back, he was bankrupt. And that was what obliged him to take an offer from the British Museum for them to have them. They were intended for his own house. You know, that was what Elgin 
took the marbles that the sculptures for was to decorate his own house. And they're just one example of things that were removed in circumstances that we wouldn't find acceptable today. So I think the British Museum has kind of been exposed quite sort of nakedly. It, it must be in crisis. You know, one cannot imagine the discussions that they've discovered that, you know, not only were things being stolen, but the sort of notification to them that they were being stolen was ignored, brushed off. You know, the thefts were um, noticed two years ago. So behind those great kind of austere institutional doors of the museum, I imagine there's a great deal of soul searching. And I just happened to check yesterday, I took a look at the site, the British Museum website for visitors. And right now, as of a couple of days ago on the 11th of September, until the 22nd, what's that? 12 days, nearly two weeks, room 18, which is where the Parthenon sculptures are on display, is shut. You know, so their great claim that they are available for everyone to see, for the world to see, you know, all day, every day and for free. At the moment, they're not. You know, the gallery is shut. You can't go and see the Parthenon sculptures. Maybe, again, sorry, this is such my pet subject, I had too much to say on it, but there's probably buckets on the floor again because the roof was leaking um, not that long ago and that gallery was closed for some while because water was falling on the floor. So, you know, the British Museum, I would say, is in trouble. It has no director. It has no deputy director. It has an admission now made that they haven't got a catalogue of everything that they have. And, and, and. And other countries saying, give us our stuff back, please. Let's talk about the Cycladic figurines. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> they, and you say this in your foreword, they inspired artists, including Picasso, including Henry Moore. Just very briefly explain their significance. Well, the Cycladic figurine is just about the most sort of primitive, sounds a negative term, but the most pared back representation of womanhood or humankind that you can possibly imagine. And yet it is perceived by Picasso and Modigliani and Henry Moore and others as being astonishingly beautiful. And that's what's so wonderful about the Cycladic figurine, the simplicity and the beauty um, that somehow go hand in hand. And as beauty generally is, it's a kind of inexplicable effect that it has on people who, who look at them. And I don't say that Picasso created a problem but he did create a recognition of their beauty because when they'd been found in the 19th century, you know, they were in different places described as sort of monstrous and ugly. But Picasso looked at them, found them very beautiful, as did some of his contemporaries, and used them in their art. And, of course, that made their financial value 
shoot up because people thought, actually, yes, you know, we do recognise now that this Cycladic art is something that's very collectible. And that was when the looting began. And during probably the 50s and 60s, a very large number of them were kind of disappeared and, you know, were beginning to fetch great sums on the art market. And they've continued to have this, I suppose, mystique and cachet. Um, And now we're recognising, you know, there's been a whole collection of them that were owned by a New York collector that have been returned and given to a museum, almost an admission that these were collected on an illegal basis. So, I mean, I personally, I find them very beautiful. I'm sure not everybody would agree with me, but I I don't think I'm in a minority. And um, I think the other thing that appeals to many people is that they are, I think about 98% of the ones that have been dug up, these we're talking about something 5,000 years old, well over 90% are representations of women. So that makes them very intriguing, you know, female the female female kind was worshipped in some way you know and love greece as we've mentioned do you get any sense from the time that you spend there and you spend a lot of time there how that period of the military junta where this novel is set how that has been reconciled into the greek consciousness into the national consciousness now are there still scars from it that you can perceive um i think The importance of democracy is very highly valued there because in most people's living memory, you know, if you were born obviously before 1967-74, you know, you you remember those seven years where you didn't vote, where there was no, you know, your options were limited. So I think you know we we have democracy in in britain but we don't we don't think about it that much because it's never been threatened i think when you have it taken away from you um then it becomes a much more important almost a commodity so the greeks i mean they they're complex the greeks and when we talk about the greeks we are really talking about 11 or 12 million people and that sometimes something I have to remind myself of, you know, that it's about the population of Greater London. It's quite a small number of people. So whenever something happens, it it feels like it's happened to a big family and they react sort of very strongly to it. So for them, democracy means freedom, freedom from too many rules and restrictions. And if you've ever driven in Greece, you'll see, well, you know, a lot of them are very anti any kind of rules. I mean, many Greeks are quite rule breaking because I think they want to feel free. So, you know, democracy means different things to different people. In terms of leaving scars, I'm not aware of them day to day. I just know that there are still people who actually quite liked the the let's say the or the law and order that democracy brought so there are people even in my own social orbit um who'll suddenly say oh that would never have happened under the junta 
and you go, I can't believe you've just said that. <clears throat> you're saying the junta was a good thing. And they say, well, you know, you could um, walk around very safely at night. And I say to them, well, I always find that I can do that anyway, even now. <laughs> you said the law and order that democracy can bring, but you meant the law and order that the hunter could, <clears throat> could Sorry, bring. Not, yeah. yeah, they're slightly nostalgic for some law and order that they felt that the hunter brought to the streets, but I don't really buy that myself. Where did your love for Greece, your passion for Greece, your identifying with Greece, where did that come from? I don't know. It just is. It hasn't come from anywhere, but I've always felt it very strongly from the first time that I visited in the 70s you know, actually probably two years after the end of the junta, but I loved it immediately. It's just is. Something that not everyone knows is that as well as the exquisite beauty of the islands, the mainland of Greece is incredibly beautiful, isn't it? Mm, yeah, the mainland is so varied. I mean, I find every island completely different one from another, but compared with the variety of the mainland, I mean, in the north... In the Epirus region, the mountains are simply spectacular, you know, huge and craggy. And walking in those mountains is quite an extraordinary experience. And then there are lakes. Um, nobody thinks of Greece having lakes. Um, in the city of Yanina, for example, there's an enormous lake with an island in the middle. Then you've got the sort of the east part of Greece sort of northeast which again you know smaller cities and and towns um, all with their own history you know stone built town you have bears in the north of Greece which you know I've got some wonderful photographs of sort of on, on the motorway where you see you know danger bears signs so you know it's got everything from the Aegean which is bluer than blue to craggy mountains up in the north where at this time of the year you would see kind of spectacular changes of colours in, in the trees and then you've got bears or or octopi. To, I mean, I'm, I don't eat octopus and never will, but, you know, creatures all great and small. I remember in my year off between school and university taking a train we were interrailing and I took a train through the Greek mainland and was just so struck by how gorgeous it was and then in 2012 I took my professor who taught me at Cambridge I don't know 10 years previously I drove him and my camera crew through the Peloponnese to Olympia to retrace the steps of the ancient Olympians because London was hosting the Olympics in 2012 I did it for my BBC documentary series that I was presenting at the time. And again, it was a stunning landscape. Okay, we have to we have to leave Greece behind for a moment because we've got four more questions. Okay. When you look back at the moment that the island became so successful, can you just tell us what that was like for you, that that breakthrough for you as an author and happening at the outset of your career as an author, really? I mean, to land the crown jewels so quickly is is is, astonish, is astonishing, isn't it? Describe the excitement, the joy, the the fun of the success that I imagine that that was. Gosh, well, you imagine it was, but I suppose I was being asked too often, "Oh, isn't it going to be difficult to write the second one?" 
Um, so that was always a bit of a downer. <laughs> but actually, the success of the island here in, in the UK happened more or less at the same time as the publication in Greece. So I was slightly distracted by that, which turned out to be a very exciting extra thing and a real surprise because I never had imagined it would even come out in Greece. And what happened was that they, my Greek publisher took me on a, a book tour all around Greece. So really weirdly, for the first time, I was going to many different parts of Greece that we've just talked about, places like Thessaloniki that I didn't really know existed, and actually discovering Greece properly for the first time, because I'd always until then been a holiday maker. I'd been a tourist and a very, you know, in love, passionate, loving everything tourist. But suddenly I was taken to real towns and real places and meeting real Greeks. And um, so it coincided with the kind of it was in the top of the charts for eight weeks in the UK but by then I was traveling in Greece kind of learning so much more that it became I knew it was a beginning rather than an end and I think that that was a it was a whole sort of period of travel and a mental awakening because I started learning the language that year as well and that was a huge thing and that took up a lot of my energy when you look back at the novels now, and there are no doubt many more to come, but you look at the return or the sunrise or the thread or those who are love, and indeed the island and others, Carte Postale we mentioned, if you encountered a new reader for the first time, someone who hadn't read Victoria Hislop, mm. which book might you recommend to them? Which book would you like them to read first? Oh, I would probably, because... I want people always to learn about Greece. I mean, that's not a motive, but it's a just a feeling I have. I would probably ask, suggest to them carte postale because carte postale takes you on a journey around Greece. Again, coming back to this sort of rich variety that Greece has that I think people quite often miss out on. So in that book, you know, I take them to... Icaria, where people live till 100 years old and look 50, um, to, you know, to the north, to the west, um, to Thessaloniki. So it, it's kind of, that has a lot of my quite personal observations and experiences of both the good and the bad of Greece. You know, I, I there's even a, a picture in that book, because it has photographs with it, of a man lying by the bins and you know that to me is obviously the the worst side of any country to see somebody who's starving and then it has pictures that show great beauty it talks about the religion of the country which is a very dominant factor of Greece the fact it's um, very Greek orthodox you know church and state are still united and for me, that that's the real, as it were, the real Greek, not to steal the name of the restaurant chain. 
Um, but I, I find that book, even if I was a reader, probably the most interesting. And you have experienced the challenges or some of the challenges that the Greeks have faced or that Greece has faced. I mean, you, you, you have helped fight wildflowers yourself and you've witnessed the devastation of what happened when the Greek economy was in such trouble. I'm going to ask you something completely different, though, mm-hmm. and, and that is about your cooking. Because, well, it's a a lead into a wider question because we're running out of questions. But I have experienced your cooking and it is very, very good. So tell us a little bit about how you as a writer find pleasure and maybe escape from the day job in cooking or in other creative endeavours or in just in, in other hobbies, in other in other passions. Give us an insight into your life, because I've been to two or three of your dinner parties and they're such good fun. Well, I think you've been to all of them. <laughs> I don't believe it. Well, the the secret of my cooking technique is that nothing should take longer to prepare than it does to eat. And generally, if you sit down to eat a plate of food, even if you've got friends there and you're all chatting, it's probably from picking up the knife and fork to having a clean plate about 20 minutes. So... That's how long I give to prepare any dish. And the simpler a dish, the better for me. Um, When people, you know, talk about marinating and, you know, chopping and just generally hours to prepare anything, I think, gosh, you could have been reading a good book while you were doing all that. So very fresh ingredients, always important and having the right people with you to eat it. And then you you obviously didn't notice that the food was actually quite mediocre. <laughs> so I do like cooking, but how I really like to spend my time is doing much more physical things because a writer spends too much time sitting on their pind, hunched over a laptop or a notebook, and it's really bad for your health. So I love tennis And my tennis has never got worse and it's still getting even slightly better as I get older. I've taken up boxing, which is my new absolute passion. It creates a kind of euphoria that I've never experienced in any other sport because it's sort of like it's like dancing, but you're using a lot more strength. And I love walking and it can be walking in a city. I don't particularly love walking in the countryside. So keeping very physically active is very important to me. And I never go anywhere without a skipping rope because you can, you know, it's aerobic. You can look, get your step count up to 5,000 in a short time and swimming. And only by really pushing myself physically can I then relax. You know, relaxing comes as a result of, stopping doing something that really pushes me physically I'm definitely not going to take you on in boxing but I, I'm not sure I knew about the tennis and I would like to take you on at tennis oh, great. I'm very competitive Victoria <laughs> this the, the so skipping I. <laughs> I bet you are I bet you are. I could see it the skipping is an interesting thing I, I I was told and I don't know whether this is true or not that when you skip you shouldn't 
as it were, land on the same spot the whole time because it's not good for your heart. But I'm not an expert in any of these things. In other mm-hmm. words, when you skip, you should skip from side to side. Absolutely. You, you have to be very conscious to do that. You have to go, I usually do, because I do it listening to music, usually kind of quite hardcore um, electro music. And you do eight and eight or 10 and 10. So you constantly switch to a different foot or you you vary the patterns you do one two one two so well, I, I was taught that and I, again I, and neither of us are experts on this of course although you sound like a very good skipper but I, I I would as it were so instead of if I'm landing with both my feet I don't land in the same spot in the middle I sort of jump from side to side mm-hmm. with both my feet yeah, yeah, yeah. but I don't know people are gonna have to look this up for themselves and find their own advice on skipping it has infinite variety and you have to skip backwards as well. Oh, really? Turn the rope backwards. I mean, there's endless with a, just three, you know, a two meter stretch of rope. You can completely change your life. I obviously haven't been to enough dinner parties at yours because I didn't know about the skipping. I'm not sure I knew about the boxing. And I definitely didn't know about the electro music. Ah, oh, well, next time we'll have Final... a boxing match followed by dinner. <laughs> Final question. When I interviewed Ian for the first time years and years ago when I was doing my BBC Five Minutes with series, I asked him how he sort of wound down or what he did in his spare time. And he said, and I think he was joking, but there was some truth in it too, that he reads his wife's novels. And at that point, I think there were only two. Does he still read your novels before they go out? Uh, yes, he does. And in fact, very significantly, The Figurine is the first novel that I have dedicated to Ian I saw I was actually very moved by that so was he he was quite shocked (laughs) it's almost had become a family joke that I never dedicated one of my books so I managed to hide that from him until I got the very first printed copy the other day and I gave it to him and he sort of opened the pages flicked through and I thought gosh he's never going to see it so actually his name is is rather short you know, for Ian, it looks so little on the page. But um, yes, my tenth, my tenth novel is is dedicated to Ian, and he has read it. I meant to ask you as part of that question, so this is a cheat. As a couple who are both so, in worldly terms, successful, do you entirely support and enjoy each other's success, or is there any element of competitiveness, whether healthy or otherwise? <laughs> No, there's no competitiveness because we're in such different fields. I have told Ian that if he ever writes a novel, I shall leave. <laughs> um, so if he does, we'll know why. Because he, you know, he writes scripts, drama scripts, and plays, which have been films, and so he 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 does dabble in creative storytelling, as well as the journalism that he does, which is his main kind of day job. But he's he's quite good at <clears throat> making up stories. But I have said if there are ever, like, lines all close together and have chapters and called fiction, then that will be a problem. What a way, <laughs> what a way to end an interview, Victoria. Thank you very much for answering my 20 plus one questions. <laughs> it's a pleasure.